in their attempts to keep people from breaking God's law and putting fences between the people and God's law, they actually created an artificial system of rules and regulations that had almost nothing to do with God's commandments. Those are the scribes and Pharisees. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is meant when someone is referred to as being legalistic? How do you recognize it compared with the, the regular patterns of obedience as commanded by the Lord in Scripture? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will begin a new six-part series titled Tradition. As the Gospel of Mark unfolds in this remarkable account, the issue of legalism goes straight to the heart of the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. He does so with two clear points, the external nature of legalism and Christ's own diagnosis of legalism, as he explains what's really going on behind the scenes. If you're sincerely trying to obey the Lord's commands, Therein lies a key challenge. How do you know whether or not you're engaged in legalism? Well, Tom, there are some practical takeaways that our listeners should expect from this series. You know, Bill, there are two vitally important implications of the study we're going to have together. One of those is to make sure that we've not believed the kind of legalism the Pharisees had, which is essentially a different gospel. And the other is that even as those who believe in the true biblical gospel, that we have not been influenced by legalism and really added to the Word of God and in some ways even undermine the Word of God by embracing those concepts and ideas that are not clearly taught chapter and verse in the Scripture. So we're going to learn that we must avoid legalism at all costs, both in terms of how we're made right with God and how we practice our righteousness. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Most of us have heard or at least heard about the famous musical Fiddler on the Roof. The story is set in 1905 in a Jewish community in Tsarist, Russia. The lead character of the musical is a Jewish man named Tevye. He's a father a milkman simply trying to eke out a living in the village of Anatevka. Tevya believes that he has a personal relationship with God, and so he confides everything in God as the musical goes along its way. And he strives very hard to keep up the traditions of his faith and of his race and of his culture. And it is there that he faces his greatest challenge. His life and the lives around him are completely framed by tradition. And the musical begins with a famous song in which he acknowledges the sort of vice-like grip of tradition over all of their lives. If it's tradition, then it must be done. Although Fiddler on the Roof is a very entertaining musical, the hold of tradition over human lives is not. It was this very issue that enslaved so many Jewish people in the first century. 
And it's the very issue which put Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel on a collision course, a collision that occurs in Mark chapter 7. I invite you to turn there with me as we continue our journey through this wonderful gospel, get to see our Lord again interacting with, in this case, his enemies. Let me read it for you. The passage begins in verse 1. In a very real sense, it continues down through verse 23, but really verses 14 to 23 are kind of a separate point and a separate discussion. So I'm going to handle it as a unit beginning in verse 1 and going down through verse 13. You follow along. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say... If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the Word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. As Mark unfolds this really remarkable account that goes to the heart of the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel, he does so in two marked points. The first is this, the external nature of legalism in verses 1 through 5. He sort of puts on display just how obviously external the things that these people were into are about. It's all about the outside of the cup, to use a metaphor Jesus would use later, and they're not worried about cleaning the inside of the cup at all. So there's the external nature of legalism, and then the second part of this passage, we have Jesus' personal diagnosis of legalism as he explains what's really going on behind the scenes. So let's take these in order as they come, beginning with the external nature of legalism. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. Now, we've already met these guys several times in the book. The Pharisees arose from a group in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes during the intertestamental period, that 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, and they were called the Hasidim. It means the separated ones. The Pharisees arose originally to oppose efforts 
to introduce Greek and pagan elements into their Jewish culture. They were the most conservative of Israel's leaders. And the Pharisees were primarily scribes. Think of it like this. The Pharisee, that was their religious association. Scribe was their occupation. The scribes had as their task to copy the Scripture and to teach it. Their responsibility was to interpret the law that God had given, the oral tradition that had come down to teach the law and to apply God's law to the circumstances of the day. In their zeal, they made hedges around God's law. In fact, the Mishnah, now you'll hear me use that expression several times tonight. Let me just define that for you. There was a great oral tradition of how the Old Testament should be interpreted. It was transmitted orally for many, many years. In the time of Christ, it was still oral. It had not been written down. Later, after Christ, it was codified, it was written down in two documents. One of them was the Mishnah, the other the Gemara, and together those two documents made what are called the Talmud. Perhaps you've heard that name. They, the Talmud is the sort of codification of all of that oral interpretation of the Old Testament. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But the Mishnah then, part of the Talmud, said that tradition is a fence around the law. They made fences to keep people from breaking God's law. That sounds like a worthy goal. But let me show you how ridiculous it got. They said, all right, the Bible, the Old Testament Scripture says that you are not to work on the Sabbath. So let's think about how to protect people from breaking that commandment. One of them, for example, was that if you were a tailor, you, you did that for a living, you couldn't carry a needle in your clothes on Friday for fear that you left it in on Saturday, the Sabbath, and that would be working. So there was a rule about that. There were other rules. For example, looking into the mirror was forbidden on the Sabbath. The reason for that was that, and I'm sure this never happens to you, but if you happen to see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pull it out, and that would be work. It would also be discouraging. <laughs> you could spit on the Sabbath, but if it landed on dirt and you accidentally kicked that dirt and spittle with your sandal, and I'm not making this up, that would be cultivating the soil. That would be working on the Sabbath, and so that was forbidden. You see how it goes. In their attempts to keep people from breaking God's law and putting fences between the people and God's law, they actually created an artificial system of rules and regulations that had almost nothing to do with God's commandments. Those are the scribes and Pharisees, busy interpreting the law to try to keep people from breaking it and creating a, a system that has almost no resemblance to the Old Testament Scriptures. It's interesting because it's from this group the opposition to Christ comes. If you go back to chapter 1, Christ had almost no opposition in his initial ministry in Galilee. But when you get to chapter 2, the opposition begins, and it comes from the religious leaders of Israel. Their hostility against Christ becomes more and more obvious. 
The issues that sort of provide the spark for their opposition to Christ are clear in a series of encounters. They really resent Jesus' claim to forgive sins in chapter 2. They resent Jesus' companionship with sinners. He's hanging around people he shouldn't hang around. If he were really a righteous man, he wouldn't do that. They resented Jesus' unwillingness to keep their traditions. And in chapter 2, it's all about fasting. They fasted twice a week. It was compulsory. And Jesus didn't, didn't march by their rules. Another problem they had with Jesus had to do with his treatment of the Sabbath and their own regulations for the Sabbath. Jesus wouldn't, again, play by their rules. Specifically, they resented the fact that Jesus' disciples picked and ate grain on the Sabbath and that Jesus actually healed somebody on the Sabbath. Those were the things that sort of stirred the people of the Jewish leaders against Christ. The last time we heard from these two groups, the scribes and Pharisees, the Pharisees in chapter 3, verse 6, went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians, those who were connected to Herod, against Jesus as to how they might kill him. They might destroy him. And in chapter 3, verse 22, the, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan and actually being possessed by the devil himself. Why such animosity and vitriol? Well, the reason the religious leaders were opposed to Jesus was first and foremost about losing their power and influence. We saw that back in these sections. Now, in chapter 7, this same group comes the 90 miles north from Jerusalem up to Capernaum, but this time on a, with a different tactic. Instead of coming to Jesus and coming at Jesus with the issue of the Sabbath, they come looking for another way to trap him. They've sent on a mission, no doubt, from the leadership in Jerusalem to catch him in something. And it doesn't take long for there to be a potential issue that arises. Notice verse 2. They come and they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Notice it wasn't even all the disciples. This doesn't appear to have been an official meal. They were just hungry. You remember several times we've discovered in the Gospel of Mark, they were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. And so apparently, at some point in the busyness of the day, perhaps while Jesus was teaching in the, Caper in the Capernaum synagogue there, the, the message on the bread of life that we saw last time, they glance over, and on the other side of the room, there are a couple of disciples trying to grab a quick snack, and they had not ceremoniously cleansed themselves. This isn't about their hygiene, by the way. Mark explains it to us. Mark explains for the sake of his Gentile Roman audience what's going on. Notice verses 3 and 4. Here's the explanation. Remember, he's writing to the Romans, Gentiles. They wouldn't have understood this, just as we're removed from that culture. And so, thankfully, he explains it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. What had started with the Pharisees had now become the expectation of, and practice of all first century Jewish people who took their faith seriously. Notice he says, Pharisees and all the Jews. All of those who took their faith seriously now did this. They never ate their food without first washing their hands. The word, the Greek word translated carefully here in verse 3 literally means with the fist. 
And there's a lot of conjecture about what that means with the fist. Some say it means you wash your hands with the fist of one hand and the palm of the other. Some say it means up to the wrist. Some say it means up to the elbow. Some say it means with cupped hands or with a handful of water. That's the most likely observation. Is it's not, it doesn't require a huge amount of water. Remember, this isn't about hygiene. This is about ceremonial cleansing of yourself. And so a handful of water is plenty. You can immediately practice that and be clean. Whatever it meant, the meaning is clear, and that is there was a ceremony before eating in order to render yourself clean before God. Now, this was never required in the Old Testament of lay people. The priests were required to ceremoniously wash their hands before their service in the tabernacle. In Exodus 30, verse 19, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet before their service. Exodus 40, verse 31, from this laver that was there on the tabernacle grounds, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet. When they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So to, approach, to serve as a priest, to approach God, meant that you ceremoniously cleansed yourself. But now they're making everybody do it. Why? Why was this necessary? Well, notice verse 3 again observing the traditions of the elders. This is about tradition. A couple of hundred years before Christ, this tradition had begun for every Jewish male. It had not been taught by the Bible. Instead, it had been taught by old, venerated rabbis. And so it passed down. Tradition. But it didn't stop with hand-washing before eating. It grows. Notice verse 3 again. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. The marketplace was the most public place in any town. It's where the vendors gathered and people came to buy and to look. It was often very crowded. In fact, if you've ever been to Jerusalem or seen pictures of Jerusalem, the marketplace probably looked very similar to this. This is from the old city in Jerusalem. Very crowded. And so when the Jewish people came home from that kind of environment, they could easily have touched someone or something that rendered them ceremonially unclean. But for that kind of exposure, that kind of potential exposure to what was unclean, it wasn't enough to wash your hands. The Greek word for cleanse here, when you come from the market, is the Greek word baptizo. You recognize it? Baptize. It means to immerse it means to immerse under the water. So if they went to the marketplace, when they got home, they needed to take a ceremonial bath, dip their whole body. This was huge in the first century. In fact, archaeology has discovered that many Jewish people had what was called a mikveh in their homes. It was a ceremonial bath. It wasn't about hygiene again. It was to practice cleansing of yourself so that you could go to the temple so that you could worship God. There were also public mitvoth, or rich public ritual baths. In fact, near the southern steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was found a building with numbers of these ritual bathing installations so that pilgrims were not allowed to go up onto the Temple Mount and, in, and into the temple grounds without being ceremonially poor, or pure. rather. So these were these baths were there so that if you came to the temple, you would immerse yourself under the water and come out 
and then you would be ceremonially able to enter the temple to worship. To date, over 150 of these ritual baths have been found in Jerusalem, 60 of them in the area where the priests used to live, the western hill, 40 of them found near the southern side of the Temple Mount. So if you were going to eat, just in case you had somehow become ceremonially unclean, you washed your hands with a handful of water. If you went to the market and were exposed at that level, then when you got home, you had to bathe in this ritual bath. You had to immerse yourself entirely. Mark adds in verse 4, and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe. Many other traditions that they must keep, such as, and he gives us some examples, such as the washing of cups and picture pitchers and copper pots. Cups are simply normal drinking containers, drink that out of which you drink. Pitchers describes what you fill your cup with. And copper or bronze pots has to do with larger vessels that are used for cooking in the kitchen. 35 pages of the Mishnah has to do with washing the various daily implements that you use to make sure they are ceremonially clean. Ladies, you think you have a problem. I mean, it was very detailed. They said that if if a vessel, for example, that you used in your kitchen or home had curves or crevices, then it was far more likely that something that would make it ceremonially unclean would come in contact with it. Therefore, it had to be washed as opposed to a flat surface that would not need to be washed. Porous surfaces like pottery had to be ceremonially washed because they were too more easily rendered unclean as opposed to hard surfaces like glass or metals. So you see how the thing just builds. And there was this endless amount of regulation and rules to keep. Not one of these rituals came from the Old Testament law. Instead, they were all drawn from a growing body of the scribes' interpretation of the law. What was strictly oral tradition in Jesus' time would later be codified, as I said, to the Talmud made up of the Mishnah and the Gemara. You know, it's hard for us to even consider what this was like because we are, it's so foreign to us. One of the commentators, James Edwards, describes or suggests that this whole distinction between clean and unclean is perhaps best illustrated to us who live in 21st century America by thinking of how things were and still are under communism. Imagine for a moment you lived in a completely communism-oriented culture where there is authoritarian government and where any hint of suspicion taints you and perhaps even condemns you. Now, how would it be if you were a person living in that culture, in that society, and you knew someone else, someone around you was under suspicion for being a spy or being anti-government? What would you do? You would avoid any contact with that person for fear that contact would render you unclean in the sight of the government, that you would be caught up in the suspicion. It would taint yourself and threaten your own position. That was the whole system of the Pharisees, because being clean was everything. 
That meant you could go to the temple. That meant you could go to the synagogue. That meant you could interact with other people in your town and in your city. You could do business. But if you were unclean, you couldn't. So it was a package. And it was a a repressive set of rules. So that was the situation. In light of all of that, and by the way, here are a couple of more mikvahs that I mentioned. These are all in the Temple Mount area and even a large one like that where they would go and dip themselves. But in light of all of that situation, notice what the Pharisees say to Jesus. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Now, you can almost hear the insinuation of guilt in that question. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Tradition. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.